This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Toronto City Council has voted overwhelmingly in favor of freezing the issuing of new licenses to drivers of ride-sharing apps like Uber. The reason is that a mandatory driver training program has been postponed because of the pandemic and council wants to wait until it's implemented. Meanwhile, the apps are warning that prices could increase and wait times could be longer for residents because of this. Uh, what do you think? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to Carlton Grant, Executive Director of Municipal Licensing, Licensing and Standards at the City of Toronto. Hello there. How are you? I'm good, Libby. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So uh, is this going to create uh, another, uh, you know, increased price that just makes it more difficult to live in the city? Um, I can't say that it'll it'll affect price. Um, the bylaw allows for um, companies to um, have surge pricing uh, as they move forward. Right. But uh, do we have enough drivers on the road al- already, in your opinion? I mean, they're saying that this freeze will will mean higher prices for consumers. Well, what I what I can say is that at the peak, we had over 90,000 Uber and Lyft drivers. That is now down to 46. The data that these private transportation companies provide us as a condition of the bylaw has indicated that ride times, um, wait times to get a ride have uh, almost doubled. And so people are waiting longer for a for a ride. That's, so, that's the data that we have. Right. So people are waiting longer. And how long are they waiting on average? Um, I think it was, you know, uh, on average, it was seven minutes. So maybe it's up to 14. I don't have that uh, exact number. But uh, all I can say is that wait times have have increased and people are waiting longer to get uh, to get a ride. So what about this mandatory driver training? It does sound like a very good idea. um, But is there any timeline for it to be put into effect? Sure. And it's it's a really important piece. And the city is committed to doing this. And we did issue a call for proposals for certified vendors uh, just before the pandemic. And we weren't able to award it uh, because we were in the we shifted um, to to doing, uh, you know, work related to the pandemic. We have reissued that uh, proposal, uh, that call for proposals, and it was issued on November 9th. Um, it closes on December 10th, and we will evaluate and hopefully have certified um, third-party trainers by the end of January. Mm-hmm. And you expect, it, it, I'm assuming it's going to be a combination of online and physical driver training. And so that's that's what's changed in the pandemic, and the training experience in, the, in class and in car and online has completely changed uh, from 2019 to 2021. These companies will submit their proposals, but then they have to go away and build them. Uh, there's a lot that goes into hiring training, making sure there's appropriate classroom, developing the technology to do it online. And then we need the capacity to get, um, you know, 46,000 PTC drivers through and 8,000 taxi drivers through this training. Right. So are you saying it's going to be all online? No, it, I believe it'll be a combination of online, in-class, and in-car or simulator. It depends on what the training companies come back with. And, um, you know, a combination would make sense. Uh, what do, do you have a sense of what the right no- number of ride-sharing drivers is? I mean, it's been cut in half. What do you think the right number is? Again, the, the number is, is not, um, it doesn't tell the full story as, you can say 90,000, not all 90,000 are on the road at the same time. Um, so it's very challenging to say what that right number is. Uh, we don't believe in a cap. Caps create false value in, these, uh, in this industry. And what we need is people to drive and be accessible to both taxis and ride shares when people need 
um, to get to where they need to go. What about taxis? There have been complaints that taxis don't necessarily want to pick up rides that are short, that aren't monetarily advantageous for them. There have been complaints. I mean, uh, there was a column in the Star today, guy who said that when he does want a shorter ride, the taxi driver says, oh, my debit machine is broken, um, which it may or may not be, obviously. So, uh, do there have to be tighter conditions for the taxis on those issues as well? Um, there are already current conditions on that. Uh, short fare refusal is not permitted. Um, I've heard a lot of stories like that. Um, whether they're true or not, uh, needs, we need, need to be there when it happens. Um, we would need to investigate and see if it happened. And that's why uh, it's important that um, all rides aren't, aren't refused, be it... Uh, Short or long, um, that is a requirement of the bylaw, and it's one of the the largest number of complaints that we receive is short fare refusal. But um, but if you have to be there when it happens, how are you ever going to issue a ticket or a fine or whatever it is that you do? I mean, you're not going to be there when they do it. Yeah. So as an example, you're right. That would be very difficult. We are not immediate responders, but what we do do is targeted enforcement at you know places like the Scotiabank Arena or Budweiser Stage and. Um, places along those lines to 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 watch what's happening. Okay, so uh, is that uh, are, are you committed to kind of uh, cleaning up that situation? Uh, we're we're committed to it, but the onus is really on the the taxi, you know, the the drivers, the owners, the brokerages to make sure that that's not happening. Uh, they do a really good job of communicating, and they need to continue to. Um, um, insist that their drivers are not um, refusing short fares. Okay. Um, we're just about out of time. What would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, just that the city is committed to training. Um, we, we believe in this, and uh, we just need the necessary time to implement it. Okay. Thank you so much, Carlton Grant, uh, City of Toronto Executive Director of Municipal Licensing and Standards. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have for Fight Back for today. I will be off for about a week. Uh, Jane Brown will be here, and uh, I'll be back next week. Everyone have a great one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be talking about masking, but first let's get to this breaking news. And this just in, Ontario will be allowing pharmacies to conduct COVID-19 tests on symptomatic individuals for the first time in the coming weeks. So what do you think about that? Um, I don't know if I'm that comfortable if just heading off to a pharmacy, if they're doing that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Dr. Barry Pakes, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health, and Dr. Tim Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, first of all, this breaking news, uh, does it surprise you? And what do you think, uh, Dr. Pakes? Um, it doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, uh, pharmacies have um, moved in, you know, fr from the beginning of the pandemic. There's been this sort of a gradual inclusion of pharmacies in a variety of pieces, mostly the testing, but also the vaccinations of, of you know, pandemic response. Um, I certainly... Um, hear people who are uncomfortable with symptomatic people coming into pharmacies. I, in fact, just got my booster dose uh, at a pharmacy, and I was thinking of that myself because I had sort of got wind that this might be coming. And, and I think that should give people pause, potentially. On the other hand, though, you know, people who had, in, 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 as someone working in public health in the response, when we had potentially sent people to get tested and they would go to, you know, a pharmacy and, and they would eventually say that, yes, they had some mild symptom and then the pharmacy wouldn't test them. You know, that's not an appropriate way of, of doing sort of generalized testing in case and contact management. So I think it's reasonable, but I think it should be done with the proper safeguard. 
Um, Dr. Sly, what do you think? I, I mean, I'm surprised that, that pharmacies actually want to do this. I mean, they're, they're pretty busy. Like, I have to tell you, uh, Dr. Pakes, you got your booster. Well, I got a, um, a rapid antigen test just so I can take a few days off, go on holiday. And, um, boy, finding a place that had a slot to do it in the right timeline, that wasn't easy. And, uh, you know, if I, if I was going to, you know, sometimes I just shop in a pharmacy and, and, um, I think I'd be a little uncomfortable thinking that the person in the seat, you know, distanced, whatever, we could be symptomatic. Yeah, the, the, the idea of pharmacies being used, uh, we should have used, done that far earlier, I think. If the whole purpose is to get, whether it's vaccination and boosters or, or testing, let's, let's get the public exposed to that as much as possible. And if that means it's done by the corner pharmacy or the physician or the family physician, I mean, these, these are un, uh, underused resources right from the very beginning. And I'm pleased to see that. One thing we, we, uh, we do need to keep tabs on. I think that's important, and that is to try and find out the the incidence rates of all of these things. What, what's the incidence of positive testing? So we need to be fairly sure that that's uh, that's still being looked at in some way. But still, at the end of the day, let's get if there's vaccine needed, pharmacists can do it on the corner, and they're not really making any really money on this either. I think it's, we need to we a vote of confidence and respect and appreciation for what they're doing, uh, or, or testing as well. What, sure. what do you mean there? Not, I mean that my antigen test costs forty bucks. Oh, you know, uh, I'm, to- I'm talking about the extra time that they put in. They, they, they. I think I believe my pharmacist said they are being compensated, but by very, very little amount in terms of Ooh. one one person is only doing that now, and that's their whole job in the pharmacy is is dealing with booster shots mm. as people come in. And now, of course, it's going to be testing as well. Well, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm just uh, I was surprised that I mean, it isn't. Having symptomatic people in a place like these pharmacy, it doesn't that put the rest of everybody at risk and, and not to mention the pharmacists conducting the tests? Oh, yeah, that's the other aspect of this thing. And that's the thing I worried about way in the, way in the beginning, a year ago, Libby, when you and I were talking, uh, the, the, the word went out, yes, you're all available for the test, provided you've got at least one of the following symptoms. And, of course, we were saying that a vast majority of people were asymptomatic, and those are the people we really need to be looking at and testing, other people who don't have symptoms. So the idea of bringing them all together into one waiting room is, is a little bit unnerving. We need to be looking at the logistics of that, and if this is sort of an extra uh, entrance or an extra way of lining them up outside or something. Yes, that's an, that's an important issue. Um, Libby, I want to actually address, I think it's an interesting question. You know, we were going to talk about airborne transmission, but I think the use of pharmacies is really interesting. And, you know, I know that a physician would get paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $7 for delivering a flu vaccine, for example, and a pharmacy would be, you know, a multiple of that, six or seven times that, um, a little bit less now. But I think, um, you know, getting foot traffic is what pharmacies want, and they are making a huge, huge astronomical amount of, of money, and, and, and I think it's of great interest to them. I think they are doing a public service, but, um, but I don't think they're doing it out of, out of any sort of you know, goodwill. It's a financial model, and unfortunately, family doctors don't have a governance model that we can use easily to, you know, to, to get, whether it's testing or vaccinations or other services, whereas pharmacies, because they're corporate entities, they do have that governance model, and we're able to do that. But, you know, I think it's, uh, it's reasonable at this time, and, and I think we should be using them to some degree, but, but I don't think they're, you know, there's, there's not a huge profit motive around that. Um, yeah, yeah, my, my, I, I think it's great to use pharmacies. It's a lot easier than dealing with the doctor's office. I mean, we keep hearing from people about doctor's offices that won't see patients in person yet. I mean, it's a lot easier for just about anything <clears throat> is my experience. It's just, I don't know if I, since I do use pharmacies, I don't know if I want to go in where there might be a, a symptomatic people that, that you know, and I know that there are lots of asymptomatic people, but hey, that's, you know, that's a risk. 
But, you know, th- that seems to me is more of a risk. Am I wrong, Dr. Sly? That, that, that was always the argument about uh, using local physicians as well, that the waiting room there would be a, a, a sea of aerosolized pathogens, you know, while you're hanging on there in that room. And this brings us to the main topic of today as well, that, that if we were just in the, in the mindset of droplets, you know, you can keep your two meters distance between chairs in the waiting room. But as we, as we have for many months now had to face the reality of droplets and an aerosolized uh, pathogen, then the two meters doesn't really mean much sense if the windows are closed and people are in there for a large number, a large amount of time. So we've got to be rethinking this whole process of, of prevention. Okay, let's uh, get to one call before we get into uh, the masking thing. And uh, again, people, uh, breaking news that pharmacies are going to be allowed to test symptomatic people. Um, what do you think of that? And are you comfortable, you know, going to a place where symptomatic people might be tested? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 Hello, Jan in Guelph. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm in a bit of a hurry because I've got to have my lunch very soon. I We had one place in Guelph to go to for this testing, way in the south end. I live way on the other side of the city, and it cost me $210 because I had to go in a cab both ways to get tested. I was coming up for surgery, major surgery, and uh, it cost me $210 to get three tests because I had to go in a cab. I had no one to take me. Mm. Uh, sorry to hear that. Yes, uh, and you needed the test. Well, they should have had one at the other end of the city as well. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had a chance to think about pharmacies, but I think it'll be a good idea. Okay, <laughs> anyway, Jen. Anyway, I must go. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> you. Enjoy bye-bye. your lunch. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 210, I thought I would have, in the, the note, I would have thought she was talking about a PCR test to get back into Canada. Those are expensive and you need them for some other places as well. Um, if I could just jump in there, yeah. I think Jan's come up with an excellent point here. Think, think of the senior citizens, too, that are, that are unable to jump into the car, and they're afraid to go on the, onto the bus, and the taxi is too expensive, but, but they can all manage to make their way to either their GP's office or the pharmacy on the corner. It's accessibility that's the name of the game here, and this is what we're really talking about now. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I do get that. Let's uh, take one more call from Catherine in Toronto. Hi, Catherine. Oh, hi. I'm quite concerned about pharmacies taking this on. There are two pharmacies I go to regularly in my neighborhood. Recently for the flu shot, physical distancing was totally impossible. We were all smushed together at the back, together with the people in the pharmacy who were picking up the script together with people who were coming in for COVID shots and weren't sure where to go. So now you want to add to that people who are symptomatic. Pharmacies have not been physically designed to accommodate physical distancing. And that really concerns me. And that's my comment. Thank you so much. Okay, Catherine, thank you for that. Uh, You know, I suspect that not every pharmacist is going to offer that. That, you know, and, and right now they don't all offer the same things at the same time. Uh, I would suspect that, that, uh, they might be thinking because, uh, you know, as you point out, they get foot traffic from all of the medical services that they provide and they might be thinking, hmm, this is, this is one that maybe uh, we don't need or we'll have specialized ones. Though, uh, Dr. Sly, I do get your point really well taken about accessibility and how hard it was for um uh for Jan and Guelph to get a shot but on the other hand uh she was not symptomatic so she could have had a shot in a pharmacy if it was available you know uh you know, I don't know what the situation is in Guelph but if she were here she wouldn't have had to go to the end of town to get an asymptomatic PCR test 
That's true, yeah. And I think at different locations, different uh, parts of the city, access was very different. <clears throat> but if we, if we stand back, push back a little bit, when uh, we began to see testing areas, for example, St. Mike's Hospital downtown, there were examples there where the lineups to get yeah. the test were themselves almost the raw material for a super spreader event. Especially at the end of the day when people were being hustled together, you know, let's get the last few in there. And there was no distance at all between people. And that's, that's something we should really watch out for. Yeah, well, there was also, remember, there was a time where if your kid had a runny nose, then you had to get a test. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we're, we're in a different kind of spot now. Mm. Um, so, uh, back to the masking thing. So, the thought now is because, you know, you see a lot of people getting where the vaccination rate is high, getting pretty lax about masking. But but there's more evidence that now masking actually you protect yourself. It's not just other people, as we were told when the whole thing started. Well, um, I think it's always been both to some degree. I think um, Dr. Tan's emphasis on trying on, on protecting yourself now is, is just to reemphasize that we do need to continue masking. And I think one of the wonderful things in Ontario, and the reason why we've weathered this really well, as difficult as it's been over the past two years, is that, you know, people have continued to mask. And, you know, there's certainly exceptions to that. But for the most part, um, what I see, and I don't go out that much anymore, but I certainly have seen that people, for the most part, are masking. And, and what we have seen, you know, as part of the pandemic response is that when we do have transmission, including in schools, you know, while it can transmit in an aerosolized manner, um, you know, when there has been transmission, it's often, oh, yeah, the kid pulled down the mask and this was another kid who was, you know, sitting right next to them during um, during lunch or something like that. And for the most part, other kids in the class or in other settings, you know, didn't uh, contract COVID. So, you know, as long as people are wearing the masks, which they are indoors in almost all settings, then then I think we're we're going to be fine. We just need to make sure we continue doing that as we, you know, progress towards the end game. Yeah, and no, I mean, the, the other thing is, like, a lot of people uh, complain that, you you know, we have now huge stadiums that are, and, and games, that there's not that much masking there. Dr. Sly. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we've spoken in the past, Libby, about this. We've got these, uh, we've now accounted over seven of these COVID C characteristics all begin with C, and so many of them are covered by something like a stadium where you're getting a large number of people all closely packed together uh, without necessarily masking, but they are all shouting and yelling at the top of their voice, which which wonderfully spreads aerosols around. So and they were there for a longer period of time, and so on and so on. So yes, yes, we we, we shouldn't let these things relax. Remember, and nothing has been a hundred percent. Nothing, whether it's a screening or a a surveillance method or vaccines or hand washing, it's all been less than 100%. So the idea is to build up at least a, a good solid basis. And that's a, that's the vaccination. Get as many people as possible and, and pat on the back to people in Ontario who've done a very good job in that, uh, better than many area, other areas. But then the more immediate protection protecting ourselves, the immediate one is the mask. It works the moment you put it on until the moment you take it off again or let it slip off, and you're protected for that period. So we can't let either of those things down. Okay. Uh, We're out of time on this. Thank you so much, Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Barry Pakes. Thanks, Libby. Have a good day. Thank you. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, you know, your, uh, your ride in uh, an Uber or Lyft or whichever ride share you use might be getting more expensive. We will talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And it's been a few weeks since we last talked about challenges to Aaron O'Toole's leadership of the Conservative Party. Well, here we are again with a letter launched yesterday by Senator Denise Batters calling for an early leadership review. Now, she says that when conservatives fight among themselves, liberals win. So, uh, 
Doesn't that, what she is doing, just extend that? Also, Ontario is one of the last two holdouts to a childcare deal with Ottawa. Is Doug Ford playing this right? Will he leave $10 billion on the table? And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is heading to Washington, D.C. this week for a meeting with the U.S. President Joe Biden and Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez, Lopez Obrador. Will he talk tough on trade? What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hello and welcome to all of you. Hi there. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, everybody. Hi. So let us begin with John. Uh, what do you make of this letter from Senator Batters? Uh, is this a friendly fire? Well, you'd think we would have learned something from the uh, from the very public fiasco display of the Green Party leading up to the election and then during the election, and been, quite frankly, since the election. Uh, where they uh, where they finally forced enemy Paul to resign. Um, look, I, I don't think anything good comes out of any when when political parties air their dirty laundry, so to speak. And and you know, all parties have done it. Charles, of course, knows uh, full well. You know the the damage this kind of stuff does with uh, with the political morale and, and and party when when these kinds of discussions happen in, in public. And you know, I, I I've always maintained um, you know since the election, uh, Libya on on this program a number of times how much I support Aaron O'Toole. And yeah, you know what? The campaign got away from us. I think that uh, there was no doubt early on that Aaron O'Toole was doing well and, and quite frankly was was looking about, looking like he was going to potentially win the election. And that's a far cry from a year previous when he got elected as leader during the pandemic uh, and, you know, wasn't, wasn't really known, didn't get a lot of media or airtime uh, during that time, but, but certainly became well-known uh, enough in the election that Canadians were giving him the trust and, and, of course, slipped up a couple of times. And that's stuff that we need to fix or they need to fix as a party. But more importantly, though, I, I, changing leaders at this stage of the game is just, is, is just irresponsible. Um, we, we've got a leader. Canadians got to know him and got to like him, by and large. We've got to, they've got to fix what they've got to fix. Uh, and move on. Having a leadership now when there's a minority government is, quite frankly, irresponsible. Charles Souza, you know, uh, obviously uh, you can tell us a little bit about uh, what happens when parties air dirty laundry, but is this the inevitable result? I mean, there are two major factions in this party. One is uh, more conservative, socially conservative, then there are the red Tories. And uh, is this just, uh, you know, the inevitable result of that? Because in Batter's letter, she was complaining about actual policies, not just the personalities. Well, it's been plaguing the party for some time, ever since uh, they did the split and the Reform Party came to be and and then they try to reunite, but what they've missed in the reunite of uh, of the right is they took away the progressive nature of the right. They're no longer progressive conservatives, and it's a small portion, a small faction of them that are that are making the noise. Uh, strange enough, in Saskatchewan, who seems to want to be their own nation. So Senator Batters, a non-elected official, by saying they're losing faith in the flip flops on carbon pricing, on guns, on social issues, on vaccines. Those are all things that Canadians care about, the majority of which, and, and for them not to be seen as right enough is, is unfortunate because for them, it's great for the Liberals. I mean, the Liberals were, were vulnerable. They all saw Trudeau as being vulnerable, especially in those rural ridings. And 5% of disenchanted individuals that are, that are fighting the issue, which may not even adhere to the, their constitution, is very distractive, very destructive. It's weakening the party, and it's going to simmer for months the squabble. And, and what's going to happen is the party's going to just be more narrow, more homogeneous than ever before. And O'Toole, uh, as much as I'm a liberal, I like his notion of trying to appeal to the public and the broader issues that matter to Canadians. And they have to unite. They've got to unite the rural and the urban, the old and the new. And if they can't do that, their only way to win is to bolster the fortunes of the NDP and split the left. Uh 
Karen, I mean, are they just shooting themselves in the foot here or are these, you know, real issues, real divisions uh, and exacerbated by the fact that Aaron O'Toole ran for the leadership on the right and suddenly he's on the left? Yeah, and, and we've spoken about this, Libby, the, the difference between running for leader of your party when your audience is conservatives and then running for leader of the country when your audience is the general electorate. And and it's not that's not to suggest that you say one thing one way and like I mean that doesn't that doesn't excuse a, a perceived flip flop as it were, but it certainly um, you know the tone of a leadership race is very very different and so you know and then also the issues that they're raising um, he was pretty clear on carbon pricing the firearms issue did get away from him as John mentioned and uh, it was unfortunate because it was that that was an unforced error and most Canadians. Uh, think that restrictions on firearms are a good thing. And so what I see playing out is that there is a faction of the party that is not lining up behind where Aaron O'Toole wants to take the party. And so it is a bit of a a, a fight for the heart and soul of the party. And at some point, there is um, an imperative, I think, for Aaron O'Toole to display leadership and seize control of this issue and tamp it down and tamp it down quickly. Because if it's allowed to fester it then undermines his ability in the general public because the things that she's talking about are kind of some things that I think the general public is also worried about. You know, it, does Aaron O'Toole flip-flop on issues? Can you trust what he's saying? Because there was a little bit of that in the election. And so this is very damaging in so many ways. And ultimately, the only person who can really fix it is Aaron O'Toole. And at some point, he's got to figure out how he can assert his leadership in a very positive and productive way, but also make crystal clear that he is the leader of the party and he has a vision for the party. And this is where he's going to take it. And then there has to be a decision. Is that where the party's willing to go? But this can't continue. Well, this can't continue. I mean, just last week we had that. What 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 did they call it? Freedom of thought caucus, the anti-vax caucus. Uh, Did this stem from that, John? Do you have any idea? Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of the um, a lot of the members that that are part of that caucus. Some of them uh, who are um, who were who have been public about being anti-vaxxers or or not disclosing their their vaccines are being more sort of from the freedom of thought uh, issue. And I think there's some within that caucus that are probably part of this uh, as well. And you know, the other thing too is as we talked about in the last show with, with the shadow cabinet um, announcement. You know, the, uh, the the critics, if you will. Um, that Aaron O'Toole put in place. Now, he made a point of being able, of, of not allowing for those who were anti-vax or have been public about anti-vax or weren't vaccinated to be part of the shadow cabinet, which is a big deal. You know, in opposition, there's very few tools you have at your hand uh, by way of a leader, by way of power, and, and by way of kind of promoting members within caucus to do things as a shadow cabinet is. So it's an important, actually, distinction. And when you're not on there, it's a sign. And I think Aaron O'Toole... Uh, was strong in making sure that those who were anti-vaxxers or those who weren't public about it were not, not part of that shadow cabinet. So that obviously breeds, breeds some level of, of contempt as well, as you can imagine, for those who aren't part of that. So I think you've seen a lot of those who were maybe disgruntled that they weren't part of the, the shadow cabinet, those that were maybe on the pro-life side of the caucus, whereas, you know, he's very much pro-choice. Um, so there's a lot of that that's stirring up and, and, and getting some of these things. But, you know, those are factions within the party, and all parties have factions in some way, shape, or form. I think the vast majority of the of the party, and I talk to a lot of folks within the party and, and not who I think are saying, look, you know what, yes, he's made some mistakes. He's got a review now that's undergoing by a former MP who's taking on the role of trying to find out what worked, what didn't work. Uh, he's doing his part but to making sure that he's fixing those unforced errors that we've talked about so that he can put himself in a position when the House comes back next week, by the way, when the, with the election of Speaker, um, to be in a position where he can actually be the official opposition and, and lead that, 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 that effort. So that's all to take, that's all to say that, you know, take these these threats seriously as he should and as he is. But by and large, there's a lot more, I think, people that are, are supportive of him that aren't as vocal as those that are against him that are sort of getting the airtime that they deserve because the media, quite frankly, wants to play up on that dissension. Well, um, yeah, good story. Charles <laughs> Souza, is there a timeline? Does he have a time limit on, on getting this under control? Or I think is... so. And I'm, I'm with John on this one. This is a minority of people within his party that's creating the stir and creating the havoc. And Aaron O'Toole, as Karen mentioned, has to impose himself, stand up tall, 
and make clear this is not happening. I'm the leader. I, I'm here to stay. I'm here to fight. And I'm going to lead this to a party to win in, an emotion, in, in a way that's going to be more successful. And he's not going to win by keeping it the way it is. They, if they haven't learned any lessons over the last number of years, is they can't just appeal to a minority of groups who are fringe and who are extremists in some respects. They have to be a bit more moderate, and they have to be a bit more in, inviting. And I think, and I know people in there. I mean, look, you have John Capabianco, a great man and a conservative. Maybe, maybe we don't always align ourselves with some of the ideologies, but we all agree what I think is most important to us as society. And I think O'Toole is doing that. He's got to show that leadership now. Impose yourself. Take advantage of the fact that you're getting some of these people attacking you and fight back and stand tall. He'll be more respected within his party by doing so. But do, what does he do? Does he kick them out of caucus? Then their numbers are reduced. Like, what, how does he do that? Because it uh, seems like whack-a-mole. Well, I mean, he doesn't have leverage to the same extent as if he had had uh, more, obviously, if he had more people in the House. No, I think he just stands tall and say, no, you, you guys can do whatever you, you can. You guys can disagree. We, we may not always come to an agreement on what's necessary, but we all agree on this. And that is, in order for us to win, we've got to stand united, and we've got to stand tall, and we've got to do what we have to do to fight who the, who's, who's the real enemy here and use that as the calling card. Oh. And, uh, yeah, there's disgruntled people. The people are disenchanted. They're, and we get that even when we have majorities, people who don't make cabinet, people who, 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 who then get bitter. You've got to nip that in the butt right away and just move on and, and not tolerate it. John Gretchen was a master at it. Yeah. He was a man. Like he he stood. He he could care less if these nervous Nellies, as he would call them. You know what? Get away from me. I'm I'm moving on. You guys stay back if you don't want to keep up. Uh, Karen, uh, if you were predicting, is he going to survive this, or is it just going to be this ongoing drama? No, I think he will survive it. it I mean, the ongoing drama will it, it'll go on until he decides to do something about it, and hopefully that sooner than later. But. You know, as John has mentioned, and as Charles mentioned, like there's a lot of moderate conservatives that understand that Aaron O'Toole has the right direction if he wants to form a majority government. And these fringe groups are local, are very vocal because they're getting media airtime. And um, but you know, on its face, a senator from Saskatchewan leading a petition that actually has no merit and has no process to succeed is is it's it kind of begs the question: Is this really even newsworthy now? I guess it is. Yeah, it is. About it, right? But you know, it's it's really like what? What? Like you're an unelected senator. Um, what? What do you think you're doing here? And so, it, it there is a real, I think, moment that this can fade away, and it needs to fade away. And it, as I say, it, it. I don't think it will be his undoing because he is a good politician, and he's a good leader, and he's got a good vision. Okay. Um, moving right along here to this childcare deal. So Ontario and New Brunswick are now the only provinces that haven't, uh, you know, uh, made a deal and got the cash. Uh, so is Doug Ford playing this right? He says the deal is not good enough, that uh, it costs more to run daycare in Ontario than in the nation of Saskatchewan, and uh, that uh, the province wants credit for for paying for all-day kindergarten. So is Doug Ford right on this, or is he just going to pass up a lot of free or not-so-free money? Charles? Yeah, transfer payments, ongoing battles on every issue. Health care, child care, now, anything you know, that, that we get into issues, there's always that, there's also squabbling and dispute. It's funny how they're they're now fighting for a full-day kindergarten when they didn't want it initially, something that Dalton McGinty brought in, and it provides, uh, and it's expensive, very much so. But we have an opportunity to strike a great deal with child care with the federal government. They made very, you know, very clearly indicated that they want to support the program, and uh, yeah, I get it. They're going to want, the, the Ontario wants more money. They'll come to an agreement. Uh, John, what do you think? Well, I think this kind of this kind of issue has a bit of a shelf life with respect to the, the premier and the government sort of having this this ongoing discussion, debate, um, you know, negotiations with the federal government regarding you know more money and the whatnot. I think it's it's fair for the premier to say, look, as the largest province, as the as the most uh, as the most um, um, costly 
province when it comes to this. We want to make sure that we get our fair share, that it's not just a sort of a pie-cutting, you know, um, uh, scenario where, you know, and I know the federal government is, is rationing the money to the provinces based on per capita and, and all that, which I think is important. But but I do think, though, Libby, that, that you know, the Premier has, has every right to be able to go back and say we need more money. I think I think that only goes so far. Uh, and I think that, you know, once you got other provinces, especially Alberta, as you saw, the, the prime minister made a big point of saying, well, you know, look, if Alberta can make a deal, then why can't Ontario make a deal? Um, but they're in political different stages of, of um, especially the premiers, right? You know, Premier Kenny actually needed to have that press conference yesterday and needed to have the prime minister and the federal government come in and have a good news story to say, hey, we signed on to this uh, deal. I think that bodes well for for um, for Jason, for the Premier Kenny's you know, political fortunes, given the fact that mm. they're having his own issues. With <laughs> we'll <respect> see. <laughs> um, Karen Stintz? Know, yeah, but, on, but Ontario, yeah. I think the same thing. I think Ontario, I think we'll see a deal, though, Libby. Karen? Yeah, I do, too. And I, and I think that the, the province actually is rightly... Um, positioning itself to say, look, we, you know, they do have full-day kindergarten um, starting at an earlier age than many other provinces, and Quebec certainly was afforded a great deal of flexibility in terms of the transfer payment they received because they already offer the program. So I, I think that this is, I think there's some legitimacy here to the position Ontario is taking. I think they will figure it out, but um, I, I don't actually think this is politics. I think that, there, that there's probably a bit, a bit of legitimacy here around uh, recognizing what Ontario does offer and and what it costs to deliver programming, this type of program in Ontario, and um, and that they would just want to make sure that they're negotiating, you know, from a firm position. Uh, let's take a call from David in Toronto. And uh, David, hi, David. Hi, I have a question for the panel. Okay. And that's regarding uh, this uh, dissenting senator. The question is, why does the uh, the Conservative Senate kick her out of the out of their caucus therefore she is forced to sit as an independent that way they're they're they're, they're trying to control what's going on uh I, i'm not because you know that that whole non-partisan alleged non-partisan senate thing so um uh, uh john uh, are they actually is there actually a, a conservative caucus still in the senate there is, uh, albeit small. It's a good question, um, you know, and, and, uh, and a lot of a lot of people have been sort of musing about, you know, kicking her out of out of the Senate. Because, and then Charles alluded to it. The senators are not elected officials; they're appointed. And she was appointed by uh, by Stephen Harper back when he was prime minister. Um, but look, you know, there is a there is a small caucus. Caucuses, a party affiliated caucus in the Senate, have, have dwindled over the years. You know, especially because. Um, even the prime minister, when he first got elected, reformed the Senate. So there's a lot more independence or various sectors of, of, of independence within the Senate. So there's not a big, a big group, but there, but there are some conservative senators. She's one. Uh, and as such, she is part of the overall conservative caucus. And, and you could certainly, uh, recommend that the caucus in the Senate move her into independence. But, you know, again, what, what Aaron has been consistent about has always been about that he wants to allow for free thinking and some dissent, some dissent in the party that is part of his, but part of his, uh, his modus operandi. But that can only go so far. So we'll see where this goes. And, and there has been talk about having her removed as a as a conservative senator and moved as an moved to an independent senator. But that's a decision the Senate has to make. Uh, David, for what it's worth, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you you for taking my call. Have a great day. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, that that doesn't cost them any votes or anything. No. So, um, yeah, that sounds like a a good solution to me. So I I hope Aaron O'Toole is listening today. (laughs) (laughs) He might be. You never know. You never know. Uh, You never know. Uh, Charles, do you think that would be an elegant solution? Back to that topic? It's the Senate. It doesn't... Yeah, uh, the, the, what, when we worry about Leslie and a few others that are voters within the House, that's more problematic for Aaron O'Toole, but not in the Senate. Yeah. And, and uh, as John mentioned, uh, she has imposed herself as a conservative. She's there talking on behalf of her party to oust their leader. How, you know, if she's in the Senate and she puts him in, the, it doesn't matter. It won't. It, there's no implication to him to remove her from the party. Other than he's being challenged and he wants to also be seen as being open to criticism and dealing with it. And I think that's what he should do. I mean, he can make her independent, but it doesn't matter because the Senate, it really doesn't matter. 
Okay. So uh, everyone seems to agree that there will be a child care deal, uh, and uh, it doesn't really matter that Doug Ford is is holding out a little bit. Am I? Did I read it right, guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, Ontario, even when it qualified, even when it became a so-called not-half province and it qualified for equalization, it was still the largest net contributor to the Federation by over 10 to $11 billion annually. And mm-hmm. Quebec was a recipient of the same amount of money. And they were, uh, they were in a positive position. So I can appreciate the Premier's stance on this. They're trying to fight for a bigger share, and that's appropriate. And, and Quebec uh, has kind of no strings on this Not money. Yeah. Not just a pure transfer payment. Well, exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, Justin Trudeau is going off to Washington trying to repair the relationship, but uh, do you think that he'll be talking tough there? Karen. Got an open mic? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he, he should. I, you know, one of the things that the United States don't seem to appreciate, maybe in its full cons- uh, extent, is the degree of economic power uh, that exists between Canada and the United States, especially around the Great Lakes and the supply chain and the whole notion of of their own uh, uh, employment and benefits from the, of, of that integrated economy with with Ontario and with Canada. And we should remind the, the the president of that. I'm sure they do, obviously. But this whole rising U.S. protectionism, uh, this now notion of trade restrictions. It's, it, it only it only bites everybody. It only work weakens us, especially when you look at the EU and China. And what leverage? I guess the question you really have to ask is, what does Canada have that the U.S. needs, and then build on that leverage? And in our case, it's mainly minerals and, and the auto sector and some of their uh, climate initiatives. But that's what we have to build upon, and I think he should be a bit more forceful. And certainly the Business Council of Canada is suggesting that he becomes more forceful and, uh, and fight it's gonna like we're all gonna deal with higher inflation, higher interest rates, the social pandemic. The last thing any economy wants is to shrink their markets, and if that's what the U.S. is planning to do, uh, when they're a big power, so they're in a bigger bigger position than we are. But it's gonna weaken all of us. Uh, John, what do you think? What does Trudeau have to do there, or be seen to be doing? Well, this is an important meeting for 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 the prime minister, and of course for Canada, especially because it's it's uh, it's with it's with the Mexican counterpart as well. So. Uh, he, there's no question that he has to go in there protecting Canada because, you know, everyone assumed that when Donald Trump got defeated and, and President Biden became the president, that relations between Canada uh, and the U.S. would have been a little bit smoother. And as we've seen over the course of the last you know year or two, uh, it hasn't been the case. You know, the, the U.S. hasn't hasn't been particularly uh, friendly to, to, to Canada. Now, notwithstanding, of course, the, the, the wonderful work that the U.S. did to help us with the two Michaels and getting them out of China. But but on this issue of protection, protectionism specifically, is of course, as you know, President Trump was all about America first, and Biden was supposed to be not so much that way, uh, but he's proven to be that way. So this is an important meeting to, to, to reinsert ourselves as the favored, uh, you know, cousin, if you will, of the U.S., over Mexico and to sort of get us some some reprieve on some of this protectionism stuff so we can get the trade back up to where it should be. But Biden is known for having protectionist views, Karen. Yeah, and he also, he's battling a little bit in the same way that Aaron O'Toole is battling in that he has a a lot of factions within his own party that um, are quite diverse. And so he, in order to keep his coalition together, he's got to appeal to those factions. And it is... um, to the point, what, you know, what does Trudeau need to do? You know, I think Trudeau first needs to understand that we don't have a special relationship with the U.S. Whatever we thought we had, we actually don't have. You know and what, Karen? I, you're, you're just about the first person who's actually expressed that plainly. I, I think you're yeah. right. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and because it's playing out in Line 5, it's playing out in um, these protectionist measures. And so we have to, first and foremost, recognize that we don't, you know, we're not the favorite cousin, and we need to figure out how we can rebuild that relationship. And it is, that will be his job, is to figure out how that process unfolds. Because right now, we are, I, I'd probably say Mexico is probably more favored than we are, because they can probably offer the U.S. more than we can. And it's unfortunate that it's, this is the way it is, but this, but it is the way it is. So, so here's uh, another question coming out of that. Um, if we accept that, I mean, from what I see, I don't think we can get back there. Charles, uh, do you disagree? 
Well, we've always seen it in regard to the energy issues. I mean, the, the U.S. are big on energy security, protecting themselves against some of the Middle East and other world powers. And yet here's Canada with a lot of energy support, and, uh, and they want to curb that activity because of environmental issues, and I get that. Um, I, I, I tend to agree. We are not seen in – we're not their number one partner. They, they don't see us as being the number one issue. Um, and we, I don't know how you change those attitudes when, in fact, when it comes to trade and economic transactions, we are a, we are one of the number ones. And, and if we don't have it with the United States, what are we going to do? Who are we going to play out to? And, and this whole notion of pro-China and anti-China is a big issue with the U.S. and with us in Canada. But, you know, we may find ourselves looking to broaden our scope outside of the North America in order to, to build those real economic trade relations. And I, I, I agree. I, I think uh, um, in, in, in some respects, as bad as Trump was with Canada in, in terms of, of, of uh, steel and, and auto factors and so forth, we knew where we stood. Right now, I don't know where we are. I don't know who we're dealing with. I don't know if, if they don't seem to be as straight with us as Trump was. Okay. Uh, John, last word to you. Can we get back to uh, best friend status or, or just sort of give up on it? No, never give up on it. It's too, uh, the U.S. is just too important of a neighbor of, of, a, of, a, of a relationship for us. So we should never give up on it. We should keep trying. Um, we should never bend, bend over and, and, and allow them to do things to us that, that you know, perhaps was, were done when, when President Trump was there. And I think that that this prime minister has a bit of a renewed sense now of, of being able to go there. So this meeting, as I mentioned, is quite important to see what comes out of it. I think all the talks that they've had with, with President Biden at various global um, uh, uh, conferences, not least of which COP26 most recently, are all very helpful to build that relationship back up. So never give up. I think we've got a chance to, to rebuild it. Um, but, you know, President Biden's facing his own challenges in the U.S. Uh, after pretty, pretty bad and dismal uh, midterm uh, uh, elections. Okay, yeah, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. And next week you'll be talking to Jane. I'm taking a few days off. Uh, but I look forward to talking to you all again soon. Always interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Bye. All the best. Enjoy that would be all the best. Thanks. We are going to take a break. Now, uh, before we go to break, let me give you some breaking news that actually plays into our next topic, and that is that Ontario will be allowing pharmacies to conduct COVID-19 tests on symptomatic individuals in the coming weeks. So uh, that's breaking news. Not sure how I feel about that. Uh, but, uh, there it is. Uh, we'll be talking about masking and that breaking news when we return. And by the way, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. We will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.